As you remain standing, you can turn to the book of Hosea. Chapter 6 is where we begin tonight. And if you don't know where Hosea is, it's the first of the minor prophets we have in the Old Testament. So if you make your way to one of those major prophets, just keep turning uh, to the right. Right after Daniel, you'll get to Hosea. You can find it quite easily on Chairback Bible in front of you uh, tonight on page 754. And we have quite a bit that we're going to cover along the way tonight. And so what I want to do... Uh, to get us started is just read verse 4 through 10 of chapter 6 as we left off last week in chapter 6 verse 3. So let me read chapter 6 verse 4 through 10 and then I'll pray and and we'll continue on. So here once again as the Lord does speak to you through his word. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. My judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgress the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that by your word uh, this evening, you would help us to know the depth of our sin. That your spirit would even convict us of the ways in which we have fallen short of your great glory. And remind us evermore that even the love of Christ is deeper for us than all of our sin. And that you have shown us the salvation that's found in him, he who you called out of Egypt to save sinners like us. And we pray that you be glorified in our study, that you speak to us clearly by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. For many years now, I've loved legal thrillers, books, television shows, movies. And you might be similar. And if you've followed enough of that kind of genre of storytelling, you know that there are certain Expected things that belong to the legal thriller genre. There's the establish, uh, establishing of evidence. There's this climactic courtroom scene which inevitably leads to this crescendo where, where the guilty person is finally revealed. And so if you can picture one of those scenes with me that so often marks the literary genre. Uh, you, have, you have a defendant because of his own hubris, pride, and arrogance deciding to take the witness stand. And as he sits there in the witness box, the prosecutor comes and begins to build a case. And slowly, but surely, to the interrogation and the investigation, even the evidence, it becomes increasingly clear that not everything is as it seemed it was. Then as the minutes pass, as more evidence comes, as more arguments are offered, what soon enough everyone in the courtroom realizes is that that person, the defendant, there in the witness box, is utterly and completely guilty. And if you have a sense of what that experience would be like, 
You have a sense of what we're meant to see in this second cycle of judgment and promise here in the book of Hosea. Because you might remember last week, you can glance back to chapter 4, verse 1. It was there that Yahweh said he had a controversy against the inhabitants of the land. That word controversy, we said, was a word that you could easily translate as charge. It's helping us understand that in these kind of final cycles in the prophet Hosea, chapters 4 through 14, what the Lord is doing through his prophet Hosea is summoning his people to court. And as so often happens with the Old Testament prophets, they're functioning like covenant lawyers or covenant prosecutors. They mean to to put God's people there in the witness box and prosecute them for, for breaking, for transgressing the covenant. And further, if you look back to chapter 4, verse 1, well, what you notice is what we mentioned last week there at the end of verse 1. We get the three summary charges that God has against Israel in the 8th century B.C. He says, first of all, there's no faithfulness. Secondly, there's no steadfast love. And then thirdly, there's no knowledge of God in the land. And we noticed last week how in the main Summaries of these cycles, which you can take as each one of those charges in reverse order as the Lord applies them to the conscience of Israel. So we thought about last week, chapter 4, 5, and the first few verses of chapter 6, how it was a land where nobody knows God. And even the, the winsome revival call of chapter 6, verse 3, or 1 through 3, really, was return to the Lord that we might know him. Press on to know him. And what we get in this second of three cycles in the minor prophet, we get a number of chapters tonight that articulate the evidence, uh, the reasons why Israel should be punished. And the summary theme that we're putting before you tonight is they're going to be punished for their lack of love. And then as these cycles so often go, when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see there's this promise of restoration. There's this possibility of of renewal of the relationship between God and his people. So as last week we thought about the theme about knowing God, tonight we're thinking about the theme about about loving God. And because there's something like six chapters in front of us that that I'm supposed to get through in something like less than 20 minutes, uh, what we're going to think about along the way are not so much the details of this second cycle, but the two doctrines in this second cycle. So first of all, theme of loving God, uh, the main doctrine we're going to see from the judgment portion is death comes for lack of love. Simple enough. Death comes from lack of love. And then in chapter 11, as we get to that promise portion, deliverance comes through God's love. So we're going to use various parts of those chapters to fill in those doctrines, but those are the two main things you want to see tonight. Death comes... For lack of love. Deliverance comes through God's love. And you'll notice where the text begins in verse 4 of chapter 6. As the Lord says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now students, if you look at verse 4, you'll notice he's using analogies, using metaphors. This is like that. And it reminds me of one of my favorite little booklets on preaching that was written by an old preacher named J.C. Ryle. The the title of the book, Lit, is called Simplicity in Preaching. And he's got one simple section where he says this. 
if you would attain simplicity in preaching, and this applies, of course, to any preacher, aspiring teacher, even servant in the church, if you would attain simplicity in preaching, you must use plenty of anecdotes and illustrations. And uh, you could say that Hosea, as, of course, a God-inspired preacher, he knows the utility of anecdotes and illustrations. Because what I want to show you from chapter 6 and 7 are six different analogies that he makes. Primarily, there's five metaphors and one statement that he makes to, to underscore the lack of love that exists in the land. And the first metaphor he uses is the one there in verse 4, which is that the people are like the morning mist, or the morning dew. You know, you know, kids, if your house is anything like mine this week, you might have woken up almost every morning, it seemed like, and there was dew on the ground. It was quite wet. But by lunchtime, well, it was all dry and it was all, all gone. And the Lord is saying that Israel's love, their obedience, their affection, their devotion for God is just like that. It comes, it goes. It's neither fixed nor firm. And of course, his principal problem is, notice verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is a, a common phrase that you'll find throughout the prophets. It's almost a singular statement that they make to God's people about the emptiness of their religion. So singular it is that even the Savior takes it up often in the Gospels when he wants to expose the, the false religion, really, but definitely the empty religion of the religious leaders. And they have all these forms that they're offering to God. But there's no mercy, there's no justice, there's no steadfast love in it. And so he rejects it. And maybe you wonder with me how many Christians, professing Christians, would have gathered in churches this morning, offering prayers and praise and, and proclamation to God. But he doesn't receive it because it's empty of love for him. There's no steadfast love in the worship. They're just like a morning mist. Metaphor number two in chapter seven is they're like a burning oven. If you flip ahead to chapter seven, verse five through seven, it summons us to the king's court and these leaders who should have stemmed the tide of the spiritual problem in the land. They're only stoking it just as you would a hot oven. Notice simply the metaphor as it comes, verse five through seven. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. Verse six, for their hearts are like an oven. And they approach their intrigue. All of them, verse 7, are hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. Far from stemming the slide of the spirituality in the land, they're only promoting the treachery. They're only promoting the iniquity. Even in context there, it seems as though these rulers are promoting political intrigue of assassination. They're burning hot like an oven, such as their continual iniquity and sin. And you might have had a week that was just like that. You maybe didn't realize it. Burning hot like an oven in sin. But the Lord did realize it. Because go back up to verse 2 of chapter 7. They do not consider, Yahweh says, that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. Maybe you said something you shouldn't have this week. Maybe you did something you shouldn't have this week. Surely you also thought things you shouldn't have this week. 
but maybe you excused yourself because nobody noticed. What God says is, no, I've seen all of it. And I remember all of it. To live like that is just to stoke the heat in an oven. Metaphor number three, they're like a half-baked loaf of bread. Look at verse eight. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. You know, students, I don't know if you ever had a, an experience where maybe after dinner someone brought you a dessert. You know, it looked altogether appetizing. looked altogether amazing. Then you bite into it and you realize it's half-cooked. It ruins it, doesn't it? This is not what it said it was, looked like it was. This is not what it should be. That's why one Scotsman who commentated on this text simply said of this metaphor, how better to describe a half-fed people, a half-cultured society, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted policy, than by a half-baked biscuit. They're like a morning mist, like a burning oven, like a half-baked loaf. Fourthly, they're like a senseless bird. Look at verse 11 to 12. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread them over my net and I will bring them down like the birds of the heavens. The Old Testament story records these instances where the northern kingdom sought safety and security from these pagan countries that were nearby them, like Egypt, like tribute offered to Assyria. And the Lord likens that kind of desire for security, that looking for safety, from sources that can't provide it, as living like a senseless bird. But even the language there of verse 12, you notice at the beginning, as they go. It's his way of saying, my judgment is going to hunt my people down. That my punishment will follow them. They can't outrun it. They can't outpace it. They can't escape it. And I do hope you know that's, that's true, of course, for everyone who lives a life that's lacking in love, for the Lord in its fullest, purest sense. So often the devil will tempt you, the world will even allow you to think that you can escape the wrath that's due your sin. But just as the Lord is picturing this, this heavenly net that's spread over all the birds that will bring them down, so his judgment will bring his people down. The fifth metaphor you want to see, verse 16, they're like a faulty bow. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous Bow. So children think here of a bow and an arrow. You know, I had a, a friend that used to love to frequent county fairs. And he always liked to win, you know, those huge stuffed animals. And one of his favorite games that he, that he did to try to win such a stuffed animal was he would take one of those fairground rifles, you know, and you would shoot down some sort of an object to win the prize. And he figured out not long into that endeavor that fairground rifles, they don't shoot straight. They never, they never go where they're supposed to go. They don't hit the mark. In, in this metaphor, that's what the Lord is saying the, the nation of Israel is like. They're always falling short. The, the, the bow and arrow never hits its mark. The target is never struck in the same way. And perhaps then that leads us back to chapter 6, verse 7, which isn't properly a metaphor as much as it is a singular statement. Notice, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There... They dealt faithlessly with me. So kids, what happened? Because Adam sinned. Death came. Death comes for lack of love. And the next few chapters in the 
judgment portion of the cycle are simple enough. If you look at chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord simply says, they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. It's going to finally, at last, come upon the judgment that they deserve. But notice even verse 12 uh, shows us just the degree to which the spirituality in the land has fallen apart. Verse 12, the Lord says, Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. You know, if I spoke to them, he says, if I gave them more of my word, they, they have such little love for me, they wouldn't even know it's me who's speaking to them. And I wonder if you've ever had the experience, perhaps humbling experience, where you've been in the church for years, some of you for decades, some of you maybe reading your Bible for years, others of you perhaps for decades, and then you, you hear a portion of the Lord's word read to you, and it's almost as though it's strange in a foreign language. I never knew that was in there. Here the situation is even worse than that. They wouldn't even almost recognize it as a language that they could understand. And so let me just call out a few verses from chapters 8, 9, and 10 that just reiterate the judgment that's going to fall for their lack of love. You notice the end of verse 13 in chapter 8. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. Go down to chapter 9, verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Look at the end of verse 9 of chapter 9. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Chapter 9, verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. And then chapter 10, verse 2. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. Death comes from lack of love. But as the, these cycles so often do in Hosea, there's almost this, this verse that suddenly comes at the end of all of this promised discipline, the end of all this promised punishment, and it's like an olive branch that the Lord holds out to his people. Because if you notice chapter 10, verse 12, what he commands is, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and reign upon you. And if you just scan your eyes through the next three verses, what you realize is what the Lord is communicating through his prophet is that, is that Israel has a choice. Are you going to reap righteousness? Or are you going to reap unrighteousness? Are you going to sow steadfast love? Or are you going to sow sin? And you, you realize, don't you, how that is precisely the choice that's placed before every single one of you in here tonight. Will you sow and reap steadfast love in Jesus Christ? Or will you sow and reap a love for sin? A lack of love that brings death. And then as we turn our attention to chapter 11, the promise portion, we see that deliverance comes through God's love. A couple of years ago, I came across a book that I'd never heard of before by an author who I had heard of before. 
this author that was something of a famous preacher and pastor in a few decades past in, in our circles. And it was this moving story, and it's captured quite eloquently in the title, the heartbeat behind the book. It's, it's titled, Come Home, Barbara. And it's the story that actually is co-written by this pastor and his daughter. And it tells of all the pain, of all the hardship that belonged to the household, that belonged to even their relationship. Where at the age of 18, uh, the daughter decided to reject the faith that she once professed. And how the father just began for years and years to pursue his beloved child. And if you know something about that, uh, I trust that even children, you would understand that there are a few emotions intense in this world, as intense in this world as a, a parent's righteous love for their children. And isn't it unusually intense when the child is wandering away? And I tell you that because when we come to chapter 11, we come to some of the most famous parts of Hosea. Certainly it's one of the most poignant passages in all of the prophet's ministry. This prophet who had began his ministry enacting this embodied parable, wasn't it? He was going to go marry a wife of prostitution and promiscuity. And we said last week how these judgment and promise cycles begin. It's as though that picture is no longer before our very eyes. And it's just kind of in the background. It's on the, the mantle behind the pulpit of Hosea's ministry, always informing everything that he says. Uh, but in a way that God is prone to do, he, he now flips the relational metaphor in chapter 11. No longer is he thinking of his beloved bride, Israel. He's now thinking of his child, Israel, who's gone astray. And I want to show you three things here at the end from chapter 11 about God's love. Number one, his love has been spurned. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11. He says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. The more I shouted for them to come back, the more they hardened their heart. Uh, the more that I announced my grace and mercy towards them and the coming Redeemer, the more callous their souls became. And you see, even the way in which he speaks about this as a spurned parent, verse 3, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. It was I who took them by their arms and they did not know that it was I who healed them. Maybe some of you parents can resonate with that. I raised him. I cared for her. There's no gratitude for everything that I have done to train them. They don't even realize the love that has provided everything that they need. It's love that has been spurned. And if you've lived a life this week cherishing sin, cultivating sin, pursuing sin, I trust you might see something, even in this word to you and Jose, that might break your heart of that pattern, that you've rejected the Lord's love that has trained you, that has equipped you, that has called you, that has held you up, that has healed you. His love has been spurned. Yet, secondly, his love is steadfast. For you'll notice what he says in verse 4. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. I've been down to them and, and fed them. Yet, verse 5, they have refused to return to me. 
And then he speaks, doesn't he, in verse 5, 6, and 7, about the way in which they're bent on turning away from him and the, the way in which their desire to leave him will be visited with the covenant curse of exile. But here's the poignant passage. Verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admon? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. The students, I would imagine you probably don't know much about those two relatively obscure towns mentioned there in verse 8. Adma and Zeboim. They show up in the book of Genesis and they're mentioned by way of history in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, these were towns that were destroyed when God's judgment fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. And what he's saying is, you deserve that. But how can I treat you like that? Even the verb that he uses there at the end of verse 8, my heart recoils. It's almost in the Hebrew like overturns. And amazingly, it's the exact same verb that was used of the overturning of Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment. And the Lord says, such is my tender love towards my people. It's turning me up on the inside, the thought of destroying them. Such as his steadfast love for his people. Thus will say, notice verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger. Why? For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. There's a way in which that ought to strike us for so often we can pit in the church and even as, as believing children of God that there's this kind of rivalry-like reality between God's holiness and his love and it's actually uh, his love is so beautiful because it's attached to his holiness. Uh, what is he saying here? Oh, I am not like a man who just initiates revenge, who enacts vengeance that's undeserved. Just as high as my majesty and might is, my holiness is, so great is my mercy towards my people. They have spurned his love, yet his love is steadfast. Which brings us to the third thing. His love saves. Kids, I want you to listen to verse 10. I'm sure you can picture this. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. I mean, there's these wonderful stories, aren't there, that have, have, have belonged to human literature throughout the ages about a lion roaring. And aren't they but these like small depictions of the reality that the lion of Judah roars? And there are times in which, yes, he roars in judgment. But pictured here in, in the sense of salvation, he's roaring and his people hear his voice and they come home. What's the ordinary way that the Lion of Judah roars today? Well, it's in places like this. On the Lord's Day, when books like this are opened, when preachers speak like this, what is he doing? The Lion of Judah is roaring. He's saying, come home, isn't he? My love saves. Which gets us to the singular passage. Chapter 11, verse 1. You see what God says, speaking about Israel as a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Maybe you know your Gospel of Matthew well. Chapter 2. Jesus is born. King Herod's trying to kill all the infants. And he's killing many of them. Joseph and Mary take Jesus where? They take him to Egypt. And when Herod dies and it's safe for him to return, he leaves Egypt. And the gospel writer says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Deliverance, salvation is on the way. For like Adam failed, so Israel failed. But the second Adam, the true Israel, the true son of God, he comes and he's going to keep the covenant perfectly so that people might know the love of God for them that he's shown in his son. Death comes from lack of love. There's deliverance through Christ's love. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the simplicity that's found in your word, the way in which you speak to us with striking metaphors and pictures that bring the gospel truth to our conscience. And we pray even this evening that you would, by your spirit, apply this word to our hearts that we might know what it means to walk in steadfast love, mercy and obedience before you, that our lives be ones of ever-increasing love for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.